Take your Bible with me this morning, if you will, and open to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3. I want to bring a very simple and straightforward message this morning, and I hope that uh, you'll hear it from the Lord. You're saying, Pastor, are you going back to 1 Corinthians at some point? Absolutely. Uh, Just about three weeks or so, four weeks away, we'll go back to that. But over these next few weeks, uh, we're going to do things differently uh, just to have a break from that series. Let's bow our heads together as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these who have gathered here today. Lord, they've come from all different backgrounds and all different circumstances. I met some coming in just a little while ago that their hearts are heavy, their hearts are broken, their hearts are struggling. Others, Lord, that just came through some great uh, joyful experience, just some wonderful uh, time in life and Lord, we're all gathered together here at different places in life, but Lord, I pray that you will help us today and that you will speak to us. I'm not capable of speaking to all the needs that are represented in this room, but the Holy Spirit is not limited, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will take the words of the message, the words of the Scripture, and that he will apply it to our hearts and guide us into the truth that cause us to go away today of people who are changed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Beginning in John chapter 1, excuse me, John chapter 3, verse 1, follow along with me. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that's an important word, reborn, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be, or the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You probably have been interested, as I have been interested over this past week, about what has been unfolding related to a submersible that was supposedly going down to see the remains of the Titanic. The Titanic, as you know, sank in 1912, and it is on the floor almost two and a half miles beneath the surface of the water, on the floor of the ocean, almost two and a half miles below the surface of the water. It's about 435 miles south of St. John's, Newfoundland. Last Sunday, a vessel called the Titan, a commercially owned submersible equipped with 96 hours of oxygen and five tourist passengers that were bolted from the outside into the vessel to go down to the bottom of the ocean to see and have a first-hand look at the remains of this famous ship that was lost so long ago. About an hour and 45 minutes into the descent, something catastrophic catastrophic happened and all communication with the vessel was lost for the next five days including Sunday through Thursday for the next five days the U.S. Coast Guard and other deep water vessels searched frantically for the lost submersible hoping to find it before the oxygen ran out of course you know now that on Thursday Debris from the wreckage was discovered about 1,600 feet from the Titanic wreckage, and it was consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber, which effectively indicates that the sub was crushed under the weight of the sea at some point after it lost contact with the surface. During the search, many of us have been watching periodically. I couldn't watch it all the time, but I'd pull up the news or I'd turn on the news when I could to see if they had had any more findings, any more indication that there was life, and I could not pull myself away from following that particular story. I began even asking myself the question, if I were in that sub, what would I have been feeling What would it have been like suddenly to have lost contact with the surface, the sub coming apart or imploding in some fashion? What would have been going through my mind if I didn't die instantly? What would have been going through my mind as I was tumbling through the water headed toward the bottom of the ocean almost two and a half miles down? What would have been going through my mind? Now, it appears that those that died possibly died instantaneously when the submersible imploded. And I'm I'm thankful for that and the respect that it would bring some measure of comfort. Because as I thought about it, probably some of you thought about it, it was just something beyond our fullest comprehension and caused us to fear within ourselves even thinking about being bolted into such a device and then knowing that we were plunging toward our deaths. And so their sudden death would have been merciful if that's the way it occurred. But then I began asking the question, what about their eternal souls? 
I began thinking about where those five people might be today in eternity. There's only two choices. You're either with God in his presence or you're separated in God from a place in a place that we commonly refer to as hell. Ultimately, it will be the lake of fire. There's only two places that you will go when you stop breathing in this, in this life. And when your heart stops beating, there's only two choices. And one of them is in heaven with God and the other is in hell separated from God. That raises for me a question that I've been thinking about this week, and that is, how can a person know that he or she has eternal life with God? Prayerfully, none of us are going to die in a submersible. I don't ever plan to be bolted into one, especially being bolted into one from the outside. But the fact of the matter is, you're looking at a man who has an appointment with death and his heart is going to stop beating at some point and I'm going to be in eternity. I am not just a physical being. I am a spiritual being. I have a soul and a spirit that will live somewhere forever. And where we spend eternity is determined by a choice that we make today, an understanding that we make today. And I've been thinking about those five people, not just about their physical lives and what it must have been like in those last moments of their lives as the sub was coming apart. My, my mind has been on, I wonder where they are today. And I suppose I wonder where you will be when death visits you. Where will you be after this life do you have and are you in possession of the greatest gift that's ever been given, the gift of eternal life? And that's what brings me today to this story of the man Nicodemus. Maybe one of the most well-known, one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels about any man. So let me just briefly tell you, rather than exegete and expound the entire passage and outline it all for you, let me just tell you a little bit about this story because I want to spend my, the bulk of my time on a particular passage and some particular thoughts that I want to share with you today. Because I want you to know that you know that you're a child of the living God. I want you to be able to walk away knowing that eternal life is your present uh, possession. A man by the name of Nicodemus, he was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a Pharisee, number one. Uh, the Pharisees were noted throughout the ministry of Jesus for constantly dogging his steps everywhere he went. They were always looking for fault in Jesus. They were in conflict with Jesus nearly everywhere he went. As a ruler of the Jews, he was one of the members of the Sanhedrin that religious body that was the religious ruling body in that territory of Judea. So if there were questions that were raised about what to do on some particular matter that related to the law of Moses or to some individual that had to be uh, dealt with, that they brought them before the Sanhedrin. In other words, this man is a very prominent man. This man is a well-known man, and I sort of believe that he probably came to Jesus at night 
Because coming to Jesus in the day is the way all the other Pharisees did, all of them to argue with Jesus and all of them to confront Jesus and all of them to look for fault in Jesus. But this man came with a different kind of a heart. He knew that the miracles that Jesus had done couldn't have been done by an ordinary man. And so he was interested in being able to have a quiet conversation where people didn't gather around thinking there was going to be another conflict and another confrontation with the Christ. And in the evening, he comes to Jesus and he begins asking Jesus about himself. And really, Jesus turns the questions around and starts speaking to him directly and asks him questions. Nicodemus is interested in, in the things of God. He's interested in the kingdom of God. He's interested in how you get into the kingdom of God. Aren't you? Don't you want to know how to get into heaven? Don't you want to know how to be a child of God? Don't you want to know how to have eternal life? He's interested. He's seeking. I wish more people were. I wish more people stopped and thought it through and recognized they need to have an answer to that question for themselves. But this man is interested. He's considering, you know, what comes next? How can I be right with God? And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is probably like a lot of us. You know, the first time we heard that phrase, hear that phrase, we probably would have said, what? You mean I've got to go into my mother's womb a second time and be born a second time? That's impossible. But Jesus wasn't talking about going to his mother's womb and being born physically a second time. Jesus was talking about being born from above. Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth that came from above. And Nicodemus is completely confused. At one point, Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? You can imagine what a rebuke that must have been. Here is a man well respected in the community of Jews in Judea, in Jerusalem. You can imagine how this man must have felt and how he thought when he heard that question asked of him. How can you be a ruler of the Jews? And, you know, sometimes I feel like asking people that stand behind pulpits and who name the name of Christ you can't explain how to have a relationship with God. You don't know how to tell somebody how to be born again. You don't understand what it means to be a child of the living God. How can you stand in a pulpit and not be able to tell that? How can you go to a church and you not be able to explain that to somebody else? It's one of the most elementary truths that we ought to learn as the children of God is how to tell somebody else about how to be right with God because God left us here for that specific purpose. But Nicodemus is like a lot of people that I know. They don't know. I don't know. And Jesus continues the explanation. And you know, you can't fully explain everything about the new birth process. It's like the wind can you explain everything about the wind? Can you know exactly where it's coming from at a given moment or whether it's going to turn one way or the other at a given moment? And the answer to that is absolutely not, but you can see the effects of it. You can witness what it does. And Jesus wants this man to know that when you've been born again, 
there's an effect. There's a change. You can see what's happening. You know that something is taking place and has taken place within the soul of that individual. And then Jesus begins talking to him about being lifted up. But we quote, quote that verse a lot of times as if it's a, it's a matter of praise. If we lift up Jesus in praise, if we lift up Jesus, Jesus isn't talking about being lifted up in praise. Jesus is talking about being lifted up in crucifixion. He's going to have to die. He's going to have to pay a penalty. He's going to have to suffer in our place. And in so doing, he's going to make it possible for you and for me and for every person in this world, if they so choose, they can come to Christ and they can themselves be born again. They themselves can be born from above. You can today have a second birth. You can't go back into your mother's womb and be born another time. But you can be born again today by the power of the Spirit of God that you might not fully understand all that that means, but you will know the effect of it. And you will see the result of it. Because that's the kind of work that God does for us. I suppose the most famous verse in, in all the Bible is in this text of Scripture. I read it to you a few minutes ago in John chapter 3, verse 18. I stood here yesterday with a young couple on this platform who was being married. And they shared their vows with one another, and they made their promises to each other, and they exchanged their rings, and they lit the unity candle, and there was scripture read, and there were prayers that were offered, and I appreciated that the young couple wanted on the screen behind me John 3.16. And then I told them, I said, I'm going to explain that verse during your wedding. Because there will be people there at your wedding that may never hear a gospel presentation again. And standing right here in front of me, I walk them through John 3.16 and what John 3.16 means. John 3.16 is potentially the most well-known verse in all the New Testament. Herschel Hobbes, who was a famous Baptist pastor back in the 20th century, and that sounds so long ago, but that's the century when I was born, that back in the, in the 20th century, he was a theologian. He pastored for many years in Oklahoma. Uh, he was a well-known individual. Said about John 3.16 that it is the gospel, it is the gospel in superlatives. Great way to put it. Martin Luther, who was the reformer, as you know, said about John 3.16 that it is the Bible in miniature. I would say to you that John 3.16 is probably the greatest presentation, the greatest way to present the gospel to anybody. As a matter of fact, it is the way I go about presenting the gospel myself when I'm given the opportunity to present the gospel. I take them to John chapter 3, verse 16. So for just a few minutes, knowing this story, some things about this story, knowing that Nicodemus wants to know about where he's going to be after this life, how to get into the kingdom of God, Knowing that 
we have to answer that same question. How do we get into the kingdom of God? How do we get into the family of God? How do we get into the heaven that God has prepared for his children? I, I want you to consider with me for a few minutes some things about John 3.16. They are so simple, and they are so elementary. I pray that, that you won't miss them because your eternal destiny depends on understanding them. First of all, I want us to talk about John 3.16 and its greatness. About the love of God, if you will, and its greatness. You realize that every person that's born into this world has a unique personality, and that personality defines who they are. Some of you think I'm really weird. Some of you just bond with me immediately. And I could say the same in reverse about some of you. We just all have different kinds of personalities. There are some personalities that are bigger than life. There are people who walk into a room and everybody knows they're in the room. When I moved here a little over 40 years ago, there was a preacher in this town that when he walked into a restaurant, everybody knew he was there. I didn't want to be known. We were sitting in a corner quietly to ourselves, but you could not miss that he had walked into a restaurant. That aggravates some people. That causes joy to others. It just means we're different. We all have different kinds of personalities. Some are bigger than life, and some are quieter than others. I can remember before we moved here, serving as a youth pastor, and we had families. Now, please, if you're a Yankee, if you're a northerner, if you're from New York, please don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you from a southerner's perspective, New Yorkers moving to the city of Atlanta and realizing they're people like us, and they look like us, and they breathe like us, and they eat like us, but there are some really distinct differences to us. You understand, Southerners beat around the bush. We rarely say anything directly. We're always concerned about being hospitable and not offending anybody. Uh, New Yorkers don't have that need. They just go right at it. They just tell you from the very beginning... Does that make a southerner wrong and a northerner right or vice versa? No, it just simply makes us different. We all have different personalities. God made us that way. Well, you realize that God has a personality as well? And God's personality is made up of a number of different attributes that we could talk about this morning and we've, I've preached about over the years. But do you realize at the core of the personality of God, of who he is, at the very core of who he is, the Bible says that he is love. He is love. Somebody says, well, look at me. Look at me that I'm a child of God. Isn't he so wonderful and good that he got me? It wasn't because of how good you were. It was a because of how good he is and how loving he is. I mean, the very essence, the very nature of, of the God that we're talking about is the very essence and the nature of love. 
In 1 John chapter 4, 8, it says, He who does not love does not know God. Take that into mind now. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Friends, I can stand before you today and tell you the most wonderful and the most simple news there is. God loves you. Those that are watching this service, God loves you. That is his personality. That is who he is. Yes, there are many other things about God, but that is at the core of who he is. It is that he is a God of love. Otherwise, there would be absolutely no hope for any of us. But God is love. And he doesn't just say that God is love. By the way, it doesn't say that God just loves That's one level. It says God is love. And it doesn't just say that God is love. It says here that God so loved. In other words, it adds an adverb before the word love to amplify it, to intensify it. I want you to know that God loves and that God is love. But I want you to know that he's so loved. He's so loved. You know, when I think about God loving us, so loving us, really the greatest question for secular philosophers today isn't the origin of evil. That's what everybody wants to know. Where does evil come from? Why are there so many bad things in this world? Really the greater question is the existence of love and moral good. For those things to exist, there must be a God by which they can be measured and from whom they can come because they have to be a reflection of something or someone greater than ourselves, and they cannot be explained. Moral good and love, our moral good and and love, they cannot be explained or even defined apart from God. There has to be an objective standard. Do you know who that is? That's God. God is love. That's what the Bible says. Will you just say that out loud with me? God is love. God is love. Let's just say it again. God is love. Can we just get that through our heads? For God so loved. Do you get it? Several years ago, there was a dog that went missing, and the owner placed an ad in the newspaper. Remember when people used to do that? Now they put it on Facebook and Twitter and all the other places. But the ad read, lost dog, brown hair with several mange spots, right leg is broken, walks with a slight limp, left eye is missing, ears are mangled, tail has been severed, answers to the name Lucky. Have you ever stopped to think how lucky we are to have a God who cares, who's, who cares and whose core nature is love? And I use the word lucky only in the cultural sense that we use it. It's by divine design in actuality. But do you ever stop and think about how lucky we are to have a God whose core nature is love? You think about all the other little G gods. They're all filled with hate and anger in destruction. They're all looking to take people down. The God that we call our God is a God that seeks to lift people up. 
because he is love. God is love. Dear friends, today, just stop and think. You may have grown up in a home and you never had love. I meet people like that. Pastors that I know have met many people like that through the years. People who work amongst the community, especially with those that are broken, have broken lives, meet people that have never known what it is to be truly loved. They're used by other people, but they're never loved by other people. And maybe that's where you're coming from, and you just can't quite comprehend what it means to be loved. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you, there is real love. And that real love is God's love. We talk about its greatness, but then I want us to talk about its object. Let's talk about love's object. For God so loved. It says he so loved the world. The world. It's the Greek word cosmos or cosmos. It's a word that we need to make sure you fully understand. I think you've already figured it out. But I got up this morning and saw the most beautiful sunshine after weeks, after days of, of cloudy skies. Are, do you have like seasonal depression like I do? When life is hard and then you have clouds on top of it, it's really, really hard. And I looked out and saw the beautiful sunshine. Isn't the blue sky above us gorgeous? And at nighttime, you look up and you see the beauty of the stars, and you know that God can count them all and has named them all. And you look around and you see the trees and the flowers and the grass, and then you sneeze, and then you see the trees and the flowers and the grass. But who would want to live without all the color and with all the beauty that's around us? You can go to the mountains of West Virginia, to the Appalachian Mountains, and you can see some of the most incredibly beautiful sights you will ever see. Or you can go to either coast of this great country and you can look at two oceans that will amaze you if you stop and listen to it and you look at it for just a little while. I mean, let's face it. We live in an incredibly beautiful and wonderful world even though there's a lot of things wrong with it and a lot of mess in it. This is an incredibly beautiful and wonderful world in which we live. But when he says that God so loved the world, he's not talking about that aspect of his creation. He's talking about individuals like you and me. He's talking about the people who make up and inhabit this world. We are the objects of his love. We are the objects of his love. You realize there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day. He doesn't need this earth. He doesn't need the plants and the trees and the hills and the oceans. He can make it totally new when he wants to make it totally new. But now you, there's one of you. There's one of you. And God loves you. You are the focus. You are the object of his love. That means that God loves the poor and he loves the rich. It means that he loves women and men, boys and girls. It means he loves the older person who's just shuffling along, holding on to a walker, trying to make sure they don't fall and break a hip. 
And he loves that newborn baby that's held in a mother's arms, close to her breast, and comforted and loved by that mother. He loves the strong and the healthy, and he loves the weak and the sick and the abandoned and the broken. He loves the educated, and he loves the illiterate. He loves those from every people group, black and white and brown and all of the other races that there are. He loves those of you that are self-disciplined and you show up at the gym every single day. And he loves those that are the addicts and their lives are spinning out of control. He loves the high and the mighty and the people that are in powerful positions that control so many of of the things that we know of. And he loves the low, the lowly, and the powerless and the oppressed. There isn't anybody that God doesn't love. God is love. It's a great love, and that love has an object, and that object is you and me and the people of this world. There's none that are left out. They may reject his love, but there are none that aren't loved by the God of heaven. Somebody might ask, how could God ever love me after all I've done? Yeah. You know, I've asked those same questions about myself sometimes, haven't you? But you know what? God specializes in taking broken things and doing amazing things. Think about Abraham for a moment. Did you know that Abraham was the son of an idolater? And yet he became the progenitor, the father of the nation of Israel? Or consider Jacob, who lied and deceived his father and stole his brother's blessing and birthright. Or King David... Everybody talks about King David. He was an adulterer. And then he tried to cover up his adultery by having a man murdered. Or consider Matthew, who was a collaborator with Rome, was a tax gatherer, and everybody despised him. Or think about the believers in Ephesus. Have you read in the book of Acts what Ephesus was like? Ephesus was a city filled with pagans that practiced witchcraft. And yet God saved people out of that mess. God saved them out of those circumstances. Or for those of us who've been in a study called Dear Paul with me, just think about the church at Corinth. (laughs) Just think about the church at Corinth. For those of you that have been with me, can you think of a church more messed up? I mean, it says that some of them had been fornicators, they had been idolaters, they had been thieves, they'd been drunkards, they'd been revilers, and the list goes on, and it's ugly. Do you understand what I'm saying? God loves you. He knows who you are. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows where He knows what he can do to change you, and he knows where you can be if you are willing to accept his love. You're willing to trust in him and experience his love. I mean, maybe you've committed some of these sins that I've been talking about that these great people that we know from the Bible committed, but if not, there's plenty of others in the list I can give you. Would you like me to start? Let me begin with gossip. 
There isn't anybody in this room that's not guilty of gossiping. We have all been guilty of that at one time or another. Do you realize that's killing somebody else's reputation? What about slander? Do you realize that that's a deadly sin? Do you understand sowing discord among brethren? Do you realize that's a sin against the Almighty God? What I'm saying is we've all sinned. Somehow some people seem to think they're better than everybody else and that God's just overlooking them, that there's some, something, something special. But that's not what the Bible says. There are none of us that are without sin. There are none of us that are without sin. Think about what it says. The Bible teaches us that we're all sinners, that we've all sinned. There are no exceptions for all have sinned, Romans 3.23 says, and fallen short, come short of the glory of God. How many did it say? All have sinned. Or think about Romans 5.6 where it talks about the ungodly. It says that you and I not only are sinners, we're ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Or think about what 1 Peter 3.18 says about us being unjust. It says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Or think about what he calls us in 1 John 5, 19, when he says we're wicked. The whole world lies in wickedness. Stop wearing your facade as if you're something special. You're in the same marked kind of a life as all of the rest of us are. We are all sinners. We are sinners at birth, and we are sinners by practice. That's the truth for all of us. And the real question that I think is difficult is not, is not whether God finds it difficult to love us or not. The real question for me is how God finds it possible to love us at all. How does he find it to love us at all? But I've got good news for you. Because he does, there's hope for everybody. There's hope for everybody. Let me read it to you from a different translation, the ESV. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We talk about this love's greatness. We, we talk here about this love's object, but let's talk about this love's sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. I mean, when you give your one and only, you're giving your best, and you really can't do any more than that. He didn't send an archangel. He sent his son to redeem us from our sins. And just think about this for a moment. This is not an exact parallel because God is love and you and I are not. You and I struggle with people. And we might not do something for somebody else because of the way we feel toward them. But I've already told you how God feels toward you. God loves you. But you'll get the point of what I'm trying to say. Think about the person toward whom you have the worst feelings. Maybe you have an enemy. 
Maybe it's someone you work with or a neighbor or someone uh, you've never even met, like a celebrity or a politician, but you just can't stand that person. Even hearing their voice is like eating sand. You know how when you fall at the beach and it goes in your mouth and you can't wait to wash it out? It's like eating sand. So suppose this person is in terrible need and Let's just say they're in the hospital in critical condition needing a kidney transplant. And in order to survive, they're going to have to have somebody be willing to give a a kidney. Would you be willing to help that person in some costly way to get that kidney? Would you give thousands of dollars to help them? Would you volunteer to donate the kidney? Would you ask the person you love most in the world, one of your own children, to donate his or her kidney? Would you ask the person you love most to do this if you knew that the surgery would result in unthinkable suffering and loss? Would you sacrifice the person you love most to die so that the person you dislike most can live? Understand, God loves us. And that's the difference in this story. But you begin to get the feeling of what it must have been like when his son stepped out of heaven's glory and he robed himself in flesh to live amongst us. The people who were shaking our fists in his face. And yet he loved us anyway. And just imagine saying goodbye to this person that you love most and seeing that loved one wheeled through the hospital door and then seeing your enemy come out the same door sometime later. I mean, would you be willing to do that? So listen, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, shaking our f- fist, if you will, this is not in the text, Shaking our fists in his face, if you will. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, that's beyond my comprehension. That's beyond my comprehension. In 1944, C.E. Goodman wrote the slogan for Hallmark. You remember what it was? Some of you that are old enough, I don't know if they still use it today or not, but you remember what it was? When you care enough to send the very best. Can I just tell you that God the Father sent from heaven the very best. And for what reason? Because we were deserving or we were worthy because he is a God of love. Consider not only his sacrifice, this love and its sacrifice, but finally, let's talk for a moment about God's love when it relates to its offer, its offer. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now listen to the words, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is this offer? This offer is that every person in this room and every person watching me can have eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ. 
Um, I brought something with me, so all you camera guys are going to be upset with me. A little earlier this year, I don't know if you know what this is, so for all you neophiles, uh, let, let me, or, or you uh, novices is the right word, all you novices, let me, uh, let me tell you what this is. This is a master's umbrella and a master's hat. Last year, I ministered to a man and his family during a time of crisis, a deep and dark time of crisis. I tried to love them through it and help them during that time. His wife passed anyway. She went to heaven, and that's where she is today. As you can imagine, this is the end of last year. You can imagine the grief that he was enduring, trying to adjust to his husband, to, to his wife's absence. He was able to go to the Masters in 2023. I don't know how exactly he got the tickets to go. I'm going to explain that to you in a minute. This is an illustration I've used before, so don't get ahead of me. I don't know how he got the tickets exactly. But he got into the Masters. He was there the last two days. Remember the day when it rained so hard and the ground was so terribly soggy? He was there that day. He stood behind John Rahm. He was there that day. After the Masters ended, he came back home. I don't know how many days he was back home, and he showed up at the office one day. I wasn't in the office on that day. And he left for me this umbrella his hat. You realize since I was a boy, I wanted to go to the Masters. I grew up in Atlanta. Augusta's not that far. Well, it's a long way, but it's not that far. When you want to go, it's not that far. I've ridden by Magnolia Lane, but for some reason, they wouldn't let me on it. <laughs> wanted to go to the Masters since I, was, uh, since I was a boy. Do you know how you get into the Masters? You have to enter a lottery. I suppose it's still the same way today. You have to enter a lottery. You put your name in, and they choose out so many names. If they're not corporate sponsors, they choose out so many names that are allowed to come. A lot of the times they choose out your name, and you're able to go to a practice round. You're often not able to get to the tournament itself. This man went to the tournament itself. You, you get to go, and you get to be there because your name was chosen in a lottery. And only a very few, a very few are selected to be able to go. But I want to tell you something. The gift that God has to offer, the gift of eternal life, isn't just for a select few. The gift that God has to offer is for anyone who will receive it, the gift of eternal life. You hear what he says? But whoever, please stop redefining the word to mean something other than what it, what it means. I took English. I know what the word means. Whoever means whoever, and all means all, and that's all all means. God's salvation is for you sitting here or listening here today. God's eternal life is for you today. And that's the offer of God 
today. As a matter of fact, when I when witness, witnessing to people today, it's sometimes hard to begin that conversation, and I'll often ask them now, has anybody ever told you how you could have the greatest gift Jesus wants to give, which is eternal life? And more often than not, they'll say, no, what gift are you talking about? Well, let me take a moment and tell you. Let me tell you about that great gift. It's the gift of eternal life. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I want you to understand today that this gift is available to you if you will receive it from the Savior. Bennett, Cerf, or Bennett, Bennett uh, Kerf is the, the founder of Random House Publishing, and he, he told a very moving story. He said there was a child in a children's home who was somewhat troublesome and difficult. The workers of the home were looking for an excuse to move this unwanted child to another children's home. One day the child was seen running across the grounds to a tree out in the yard. Climbing up in the tree, she deposited a note in one of the branches. And when the child was gone, the workers rushed out to the tree to retrieve the note. And they opened up the note, and this is what she had written on the note. If anyone finds this note, I love you. If anyone finds this note, I love you. Can I just tell you that our world treats God like an unwanted child in a children's home? But to anyone who reads this note, I want you to know God loves you. And today, the gift of eternal life can be yours.